This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new brainy chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place like Texas. You've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So here's what we all understand about money in our own lives. We understand that we cannot just wish it into existence for ourselves. If we want to get money, we're going to have to work hard for it or invent something that we can sell for it or we're going to have to inherit it or we're going to have to steal it. There is just no way to go one, two, three, poof, and suddenly you have more money. Unless, of course, you happen to be the Central Bank of the United States, also known as the Fed, which has since 2008, in order to head off financial crisis, has put almost $4 trillion into the hands of banks to stimulate lending and hence business activity. And where did the Fed get that money from? Well, poof, they wished it into existence. And does that sort of financial incantation actually make sense? Does it work, or does it do more harm than good? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Central banks can print prosperity. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City with four superbly qualified debaters on the stage who will argue for and against this motion, central banks can print prosperity. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here in New York City will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion again, central banks can print prosperity. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Please, let's welcome first Roger Boodle. Roger, welcome from the UK, just off of a plane yesterday. You are executive chairman of Capital Economics, author of the book The Trouble with Europe. 
You are well known for your crystal ball powers. You have forecast major events and market movements like the real estate bubble and sustained low inflation, which we're living through now. Um, you are also winner of the first Wolfson Economics Prize. You beat off, uh, out over 400 people by coming up with the best plan for doing away with the European currency known as the euro. And is that also a prediction you're making? Is that going to happen? You bet. I think the euro has been a complete disaster. I think it will break, but I'm not sufficiently good a forecaster to be able to tell you when it's going to break or indeed which country is going to leave first. Well, we'll check back in with you a little bit later. (laughs) Thank you, Roger Bull. And and can you tell us who your partner is? Yeah, my partner is the distinguished Simon Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Johnson. Simon, welcome back to your second debate now with Intelligence Squared. You're also arguing for the motion that central banks can print prosperity. You are a professor at MIT Sloan School of Management. You are former chief economist of the IMF. You are an expert on uh, financial and economic crises. You wrote a book called 13 Bankers, which detailed the 2008 financial crisis, which has been described as essential reading. 2008 was quite a while ago. Is that crisis over? The crisis of 2008 will always be with us, John. (laughs) And not in a good way, I take it. Not usually in a good way. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion, central banks can print prosperity. And we have one team arguing against the motion. Please, first, let's welcome Edward Conard. Edward, also, thank you. Uh, welcome back to your second debate with us. You're a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, author of the forthcoming book, The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. You also wrote another financial bestseller, Unintended Consequences. What are the odds that either of your books is going to be made into a really exciting movie? <laughs> <laughs> I suspect the closest my books will ever come to becoming a movie is uh, the 30 minutes I spent debating Jon Stewart uh, on his show. Ladies and gentlemen, Edward Conard. And your partner is? My partner is Andrew uh, Hussar. He was an eyewitness to uh, quantitative easing as a member of the Federal Reserve. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Hussar. Thank you very much. Andrew, you are a senior fellow at Rutgers Business School and a former managing director at Morgan Stanley. Uh, you have an interesting backstory in relation to this topic. In the spring of 2009, uh, you were working on Wall Street when you got a call from the Federal Reserve asking you to come back to work for them. What were they asking you to do? Yes, I got that 2 a.m. phone call where they asked me to basically coordinate the spending of $1.25 trillion. Wow. What kind of party did you throw? <laughs> Actually, I was eating lunch at the time and I almost threw up. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion that central banks can print prosperity. Now, this is a debate. It's a contest. And you, our live audience here in New York City, will act as the judges of this debate. By the time the arguments have been made, you will have been asked to vote two times, once before you've heard them and once again afterwards. And the team who will be declared the winner will be that whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms between the two votes. Let's move on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Here to argue first for the motion, central banks can print prosperity. Roger Bootle, founder and executive chairman of Capital Economics and author of The Trouble with Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Bootle. Thank you. This is a debate about the merits of central banks printing money to escape from or prevent 
a monetary collapse. In the jargon, the name given to the policy is quantitative easing, or QE for short. Under this policy, to be clear, the central bank buys financial assets in the markets, usually bonds, with money that it itself creates. This policy sounds extraordinary, even exotic. Uh, Hence the apparent whiff of danger, doubtless soon to be puffed up by the team sitting opposite. But in fact, this policy has featured in the standard economics textbooks for generations. Moreover, this policy has been advocated by many great economists, including the great Milton Friedman. Let's be clear about this. Printing money is not the answer to a maiden's prayer. There are limits to what it can achieve. It will not improve your sex life or fix your gammy leg. More prosaically, it won't even raise the long-term sustainable rate of economic growth. We know the factors that are responsible for that and determine it. Hard work, investment, technological progress, and organizational efficiency. But these all-important real factors operate through a financial and monetary system. And every so often, that financial and monetary system breaks down. In the Great Depression in the U.S. in the 1930s, U.S. output fell by 30%. Unemployment rose to 25% of the workforce and, interestingly, the money supply contracted by 25%. This monetary contraction played a huge role in creating and sustaining the Great Depression. At the time, the Federal Reserve did little to stop the process. By contrast, after the events of 2008-9, the deflationary process was halted by central banks printing money. Now, although we refer to the years after 2008-9 as the Great Recession, the fall in output during that period was only about 4%. What could have been a rerun of the Great Depression, or even worse, was stopped in its tracks. Now, of course, the critics will say that this is all very well, but the policy will end in failure because inflation will pick up dramatically. In fact, QE can be set into reverse, the central bank can impose reserve requirements, and indeed it can also raise interest rates. Other critics, they say it would have been better if we had had a repeat of the Great Depression. Collapse is good. It would have purged the system. Well, all I can say is that this purging of the system didn't exactly bring great benefits in the 1930s. The conclusion is clear. When the need arises, not only can central banks print prosperity, but they must. It is their bounden duty. Thank you, Roger Boodle. And our motion is central banks can print prosperity... And here is our first debater speaking against the motion, Andrew Husser. He is a senior fellow at Rutgers Business School and a former Federal Reserve official who helped manage the Fed's first round of quantitative easing. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Husser. Thank you. I wish I had a British accent. I think it would sound better. Uh, Good evening. I feel very privileged to be here tonight with these distinguished colleagues. In the case of the Fed, I have great respect for the institution. These are smart, well-intentioned people. I know this because I worked with them for over 10 years. Indeed, as I hinted to you before, uh, if you want to see what a central bank money printer looks like, you're looking at one right now. Although, just to level set expectations, most of them have a lot more hair than I do. 
I too once believed that central banks could print prosperity, and then I was assigned with the task of actually spending the Fed's money. In the fourth quarter of 2008, the U.S. economy was contracting by 2% in just three months alone. Two million Americans were losing their jobs. Enter the Fed. On the day after Thanksgiving, the Fed launched something known as quantitative easing, the largest economic stimulus program in world history. The goal? Essentially, at the beginning, the Fed was pumping cash into banks with the intention of stimulating a new wave of Wall Street credit creation in America by both artificially making credit cheaper while freeing up lending capacity within the banks, the Fed was hoping to get more credit into the hands of citizens and businesses struggling from the economic downturn. In fact, before quantitative easing, Chairman Bernanke first called the initiative credit easing. In the end, from 2008 until 2014, when QE ended in America, the Fed printed and spent almost $4 trillion. What happened with that cash? Well, two out of every $3 has ended up sitting idle in Wall Street banks. Today, specifically, $2.6 trillion of the Fed's cash sits in the big Wall Street banks, being banked like them at the Fed for interest, like you and I might have a savings account. What happened to the other one-third of the cash? My own program is instructive. With our bond buying, we were specifically trying to stimulate U.S. mortgage lending by Wall Street banks, more home loans and more refis. But from the first day of the bond buying to the last, the banks consistently cut their mortgage lending. By the end of the program, U.S. mortgage lending was down by 33%. And yet at the same time, what we saw on the desk was that instead of lending, Wall Street banks began to use whatever cash they did deploy speculatively. They were using the cash mainly to pile into stocks, bonds, and commodities. What was the ultimate impact of Fed QE? Well, just to start with, 2009, the first full year of QE, was the most profitable revenue year ever in Wall Street history. Today, our two big-to-fail banks are 37% bigger, generating 40% more income annually than they were before 2008. And yet the claim of QE helping average Americans remains dubious. In 2013, McKinsey, the consulting firm, put out a study on the skewed impact of Fed money printing, saying that for every $1 that Wall Street was being subsidized by QE, the average American household was losing $2.5. The existential problem with central bank money printing is how the tool works. It doesn't create prosperity, or even if it does so marginally, it's basically creating prosperity for people who don't need the help the Jamie Diamonds and Lloyd Blankfeins of the world. If anything, over time, money printing has only helped us kick the can of desperately needed reform further down the road. I'm John Donvan. We'll be back with more of round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate in just a moment. And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. Our motion is this, central banks can print prosperity. We have two teams arguing for and against. You have heard the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Let's welcome to the lectern Simon Johnson. He is the Ronald A. Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management and former chief economist at the IMF. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Johnson. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for coming out to, to listen to, to this debate. I do have one of those strange British accents, I will concede that, but I do know also a lot of American history. And by my count, this is the sixth time in American history when there has been an intense public debate on and exactly this question, perhaps the wording was slightly different before. It was debated at the beginning of the Republic. It was debated intensely uh, under Andrew Jackson in the 1830s. It was debated before the Fed was set up in 1913. It was debated absolutely in this city in the 1970s. And, and here we are after 2008. And, and the question, the question is, it's really of fundamental importance to focus on the question before us. But is it prosperity that the central bank can bring you by printing? 
Well, th- this question was answered directly, in, in very cl- as close as you can get, in the 1930s. In the 1930s, people like our opponents today, people with an immense amount of, of experience, almost all of those people in the 1930s said, categorically, the central bank cannot print prosperity. And the central bank didn't. The Federal Reserve didn't. The Federal, Federal Reserve did not respond to the panic, did not respond to the run on banks, did not do what Milton Friedman said. Milton Friedman, not a man of the left, the great University of Chicago economist. His, his history, Monetary History of the United States with Anna Schwartz is, 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 is a must read. Okay, maybe not on a date night, but it's a must read. Friedman and Schwartz said the Federal Reserve made a big mistake. They should have printed money. And they didn't. And you got a Great Depression with cataclysmic results. When you're in a crisis, when everything is going to hell, you have to step up if you're the central bank. You have to save the day. The option is to rerun a version of the 1930s. And if you want to do that, then take control of the Federal Reserve, put them in a straitjacket. This is actually a proposal right now in Washington, D.C., and prevent them from responding to the next crisis. You will get another Great Depression under those circumstances. We need flexibility. We need pragmatism. We need people like Andrew and his colleagues when they were at the Fed, smart, creative people who look at the situation and try to prevent it from getting worse. And I think that's the prosperity that I want to focus on, Andrew, which is, yes, I understand it was difficult. I understand you didn't get everything you wanted. You didn't get everything that any of us wanted. I understand you lost some hair, and I'm sorry about that too. Um, But... What would have happened if the, if the Federal Reserve hadn't done that? Interest rates would have been higher. It would have been much harder to borrow. Credit would have been completely disrupted. This is not the 1830s. This is not 1913. It's not even 1930s. You have credit in your wallet. You have credit connected with your mortgage. You have credit in every single part of your business life, your personal life, your financing of education, how you plan for your children's future, your retirement. It's all intertwined in the United States and in other leading industrial economies. Central banks can print prosperity. If you let them do it, you get a better economic outcome than you would otherwise. Central banks, under those circumstances, can, should, and must print prosperity. Thank you. Thank you, Simon Johnson. And that's the motion. Central banks can print prosperity. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, let's welcome to the lectern Edward Conard. He is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and former founding member and managing director of Bain Capital. Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Conard. Don't let our opponents hijack this debate. This is not a debate about whether the Fed should act as a lender of last resort in a run on the banks. We all agree with that point that they have made. And that's why they've taken this position, because you can't disagree with it. This is a debate about radical monetary policy that tries to print money in order to stimulate growth after a bank run in a recession. This is not QE1. This is QE infinity. It's easiest to understand monetary policy by considering a simple corn economy. We can plant the corn. That's investment. We can eat it. That's consumption. Or we can store the corn in a silo and exchange it for a piece of paper that says, I owe you a bushel of corn. That's money. Recessions occur when people get scared and start storing corn instead of eating it or planting it. It's important to recognize the Fed doesn't grow corn. All it can do is print IOUs. By printing more IOUs, monetary policy tries to change your behavior today. 
It motivates you to stop saving and start spending again. It does this by threatening the value of your savings with price inflation in the future. With more IOUs outstanding, you should logically run to the bank, to the silo, withdraw your corn, and use it before the economy recovers, people start exchanging IOUs for corn, and the silos run low on corn. But here's the rub. The Fed increased the monetary base from $800 billion to $4 trillion, an unprecedented five-fold increase in the monetary base, and it had no effect on anyone's fear of inflation whatsoever. Why? Because the Fed has promised to prevent inflation by contracting the money supply before the economy recovers and people start exchanging IOUs for corn. Advocates of quantitative easing pretend that we can have our cake and eat it too, but it didn't work when we needed the stimulus. Even Ben Bernanke now admits quantitative easing will only work if it's permanent, if it's guaranteed to inflict inflation on the economy. But nowhere does he advocate making quantitative easing permanent because of the damage it inflicts. Our opponents will ignore these risks and claim only that lower interest rates and wealth effects stimulate investment, but the economists in the audience know that after decades of research, there's no consensus whether interest rates affect real long-term investment. Why? Because unused corn lowers interest rates and makes investment cheaper, not more paper IOUs. Roger speculates in his op-eds that quantitative easing may account for about an additional one-third of a percentage point reduction in the interest rate. Who believes a reduction in interest rates, especially a measly third of a percentage point, determines how fast Apple develops the next generation iPhone? There is simply no compelling evidence that fiscal and monetary stimulus increases real business investment. If anything, the evidence shows the opposite, a dial back in business investment in the face of risky stimulus. And no surprise, in the wake of $3 trillion of monetary stimulus and $6 trillion of fiscal stimulus, Lackluster business investment and unusually slow productivity growth have been the chief reasons for the slow recovery. Quantitative easing doesn't work in theory. That's why it doesn't work in practice either. After $4 trillion of quantitative easing, Ben Bernanke has reconsidered his view. Last month in the Wall Street Journal, he admitted, quote, the Fed cannot print its way to prosperity because the Fed has no control over long-term economic fundamentals. Side with Ben Bernanke and vote against the motion. Central banks can print their way to prosperity. Thank you, Ed Conard. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is central banks can print prosperity. Now we move on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you and our live audience here in New York. We have two teams debating this motion, Central Banks Can Print Prosperity. On the side arguing for the motion, Roger Boodle and Simon Johnson, we have heard them say that in times of absolute economic crisis, financial system breaking, a tsunami of collapsing credit. It is absolutely the responsibility of the central bank to print money to rescue that situation. They also say that it has been effective in our own time and that the absence of such a policy during the 1930s is largely responsible for what happened during the Great Depression. The team arguing against the motion, Ed Conard and Andrew Hussar, are obviously taking the opposite point of view, calling it an unproductive tool in creating prosperity. They have said that uh, in our very recent experience that the Fed's 
quantitative easing program begun in 2008 did not induce investment or spending and, in fact, had unintended consequences such as moving assets to the wealthy, hoping for a trickle-down effect to the average citizen, which did not happen. That quantitative easing does not work in practice, and it does not make sense in theory either. I want to go to the team arguing for the motion that central banks can print prosperity. Just this argument that your opponents just made, that even the theory behind it doesn't make sense. Simon Johnson, your response to that? So Milton Friedman was the preeminent monetary theorist of his or any generation. He's the person who created the way we think about money in, in, the, in the world today. And, and his central argument regarding the Great Depression was that the Federal Reserve should have printed money. And if, he's got plenty of theoretical papers that, that back that up. So it's the claim that there's no theoretical basis for this approach to thinking about money and credit is simply false. In a bank run, people run to the, they get scared, they run to the bank to pull out their money. We can let the whole financial system collapse. Or the Fed can print money, hand it to depositors, let them hold it for a second, the panic goes away, they redeposit the money in the bank, and we burn the money. What we want to debate today is whether or not, after that happens and we bail out the banks, can we, through radical monetary policy, quantitative easing, which has increased the monetary base from $800 billion to $4 trillion because the Fed didn't burn the money after the money was returned to the banking system, they tried to create prosperity that way. The question is right, whether Boodle. or not it works. Roger Boodle. Yeah, you're spewing out all these numbers as though you're a central bank printing money. Uh, actually, you completely misrepresented Ben Bernanke's position. Uh, he has not recanted. The notion that he's given up on what he spent his life's work writing and doing is, quite frankly, absurd. What he meant by saying, if those were exactly the words he used, about central banks not being able to print prosperity, was exactly what I was talking about earlier on. That's to say the contrast between the real sources of economic growth and the notion that central banks can't change those things dramatically. Of course they can't conjure up massive amounts of of, uh, technological progress or whatever. We all know that. The issue is, are there times when the monetary and financial system is on the brink of collapse? Undoubtedly, don't, yes. I'd don't like to let know these the guys Undoubtedly, go there. yes. There's no debate and then the on second question anyone. is when those occasions happen, what do you think you should do? Sit there and do nothing? Andrew Hussar. So, I, I mean, I, I was sitting there and I was money printing. So, I, I mean, let me just tell you, I, I, think we, I, I, I think we really need to be clear about what we're debating. Are we talking about the first $1.75 trillion of Fed monetary policy uh, of quantitative well, easing, or are we talking about the whole kit and caboodle? Why do we need to choose? Because the, 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 because the, 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 motion, the motion can cover both. It can cover both. But and I reality- think it would be more interesting if it did. <laughs> Well, there's no disagreement but, on the first. So, so I mean, you're, you would concede that the... That, I think they're conceding the motion, so actually, John. I, yeah, I mean, I, if no. you look at my writing or, or speaking, I've always said it should have been QE one and done. So I, the reality is the, the first stage of QE that was the let's put out the fire stage of QE ended in, in 2010. And we've gone, we went on for four more years. And so I think from a time perspective, the vast majority of money printing happened when we all agreed that the crisis was over and, and central banks around the world have begun to try to stimulate growth and stimulate employment. And I think that's where we've seen massive okay. distortions and right. massive opaque Wall Street subsidies. All right, so you've given a good answer for a wider frame at post-first QE. So I want to ask Simon Johnson to respond to that, the, their, their critique of the program more, say, of the last five years as opposed to the last seven years. If this were a Woody Allen movie, Ben Bernanke would walk on, out on stage now, I think. That, that would be actually quite good. Um, We've got some guys. It's very, it's very straightforward. It's very straightforward. <laughs> this is a debate. There are rules. There's a motion. The motion is... 
Very simply, you've right, written wait, down. No, no. I, the, the, the I, motion, so let me, let me, I'm answering the question, I, John. Last time I was here, John, you cut me off at the critical moment uh, a couple of years ago. So let's not, let's not go do that again. The motion so is... So that's the reason you lost last time and you're blaming that, me? That was... <laughs> I'm that, that, was, that was the main reason, yes. What I would like to do is actually explore on your side, if you would be willing to take into that spirit conceding that you've already won in that technical sense because they conceded in that one time because they hijacked the debate. <laughs> Take on the issue of what your opponents are talking about of more of the last four or five years where that sort of QE backfired in two ways, they say. Uh, one is that it, it, the, the benefits accrued to the wealthy and there was little trickle down to the ordinary person. And secondly, that... Um, not very much happened in terms of that most of that money, two-thirds of that money, they said, is still sitting in the bank vaults, not getting used in any particular way. It's an interesting point, and I would love to know what your response is to it now that you've won the debate. <laughs> Let's take it, Roger Boodle. I don't think the moderator should say they won the debate. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, this is just basic monetary economics, I'm afraid. The banks collectively cannot get rid of the stuff. Uh, Bank One tries to get rid of it by, I don't know, bidding down for deposits or lending it or buying securities. What does that do? It passes it on to other banks. There's no way that the banking system collectively can extinguish the money. So simply saying that the money is still sitting on banks' books does not advance your argument at all. Look, there's very now, easy the, ways to measure this. Now, now the notion that uh, it hasn't worked very well, it certainly hasn't worked perfectly, but I mean, looking back at the evidence, you'd think that America was still in recession. In fact, what's happened is you've had a pretty decent recovery, you've had millions of jobs created. Okay, there are bankers that have earned obscene and absurd amounts of money, and I am no defender of that. But you mustn't conflate these two. Okay. Just, just so, because the central bank has created money, that hasn't automatically gone into Lloyd right. Bank Fine's now, but pockets. If we, now, if we are going to play with the language of the motion, uh, the word prosperity is there. Is what they're describing prosperity? I think we can measure how much money has been used. It's very easy, and it gets to the question of prosperity. One is to look at business investment as a percent of GDP. It's been tepid. We've seen no rebound. Mortgage lending is way down from where it was in the past. We can look at business lending from the banks. There hasn't been a lot of business lending from the banks. And so by real measures of the economy, we know that the economy is down. And it's not like we saw in normal recessions a rebound and then growth. We went down unusually to a very low base, and we have had below average growth from that base onward. So now I think Ed is conceding uh, the substance of, of, the, of the motion uh, to us. I don't think so. So, so let, me, let me explain. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. Uh, let me explain why, John. So we agree, and he, he just stated very clearly, um, that there has been, or he said he, he discussed the consequences of the greatest financial crisis since the 1930s. That it was the crisis that brought down investment that brought down employment, that destroyed businesses. I would remind everyone that in the fall of 2008, there was no credit to be had on reasonable terms for almost anyone, individual or firm, in this economy. That was the financial crisis. The real response was to push back and to resist the collapse of credit. This is where the printing of money... So the printing of money, the creation of money that goes into the financial system eases credit, makes credit more available, lowers interest rates for various kinds of products, makes it possible to get a mortgage, makes it possible to have a credit card. When I was in the Fed, it wasn't just that I was losing hair or getting frustrated. It was the reality that what we were seeing was we were pumping a lot of cash into the big Wall Street banks with the intention potentially of credit easing, of, of, of improving credit conditions for the average American. And what the banks were doing instead 
And what they've continued to do over the last uh, seven years, effectively, is to uh, use that cash for their own speculative purposes. Basically, over the last seven years, you've seen the big Wall Street banks basically increase their lending from $7.3 trillion to $8.1 trillion, so about 10%. And you've seen them actually just increase their bond holdings, their speculative bond holdings, from $2.1 to $3.7 trillion. That's 75%. Uh, uh, and that's not even the socks that they're buying and the commodities that they're buying. So, so Andrew, what's, what's your bottom line on this point? Then? The bottom line is that as well-intentioned as, as QE is, it's actually subsidizing Wall Street and not really benefiting uh, sufficiently the, okay. the rest Power- of us. Powerful enough to point that before we go on these questions, I want to let your opponents respond, either of you. Would you like to? Well, the fact Roger, that the, Roger yeah, the fact that the banks have used uh, some, or even indeed all of the money, to buy bonds doesn't prove anything at all. Frankly, it doesn't negate the transmission mechanism of monetary policy whatsoever. In buying bonds, adding to the demand for bonds in the market, they've raised the price of bonds, lowered the rate of interest on bonds, and of course they've bought the bonds from someone or other, and that's pushing the monetary Im- impulse all the way uh, through if the economy. If, if the price of credit has gone down and they're not lending on some level, I just there's not an impact on, on consumption or on investment. I disagree with both of these guys. What makes lending easier... We're going to get you another table. What, that you can... I'll take it. What makes lending easier is corn in the silos not printing IOUs. It's having real savings in a real economy. It's not accounting. Accounting can facilitate it in weird ways, like, for example, in a financial crisis when everybody's grabbing their money and trying to withdraw it from the bank. But on an ongoing basis, what the Fed has tried to do over the last six years okay, is print IOUs. It hasn't created a nickel, a bushel of corn in the silo. It has not made it easier or harder to lend. I'm John Donvan. Still to come, questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, Central Banks Can Print Prosperity. Sir. Thanks. Um, I think you've all established pretty conclusively that Federal Reserve cannot help Apple make the next iPhone. But, that would hope. But that's the supply side. But doesn't the demand side affect my ability to buy the iPhone in a, in a credit crisis? Isn't credit creation somewhat affected and if so, can the Fed act on the demand side by helping spur my ability to buy? Now, whether or okay, not... No, that's, you, that was a question mark right there. Perfect. So, so, so it, uh, Since 2008 in America, you know, we have a 70% consumer spending economy, right? We all know this. In, in America, over the last seven years, the, the rate of growth of consumer spending has been 1.7%, which is the most anemic consumer growth on record in the history of the United States. So it, to the extent that we not only have fiscal stimulus but we actually have had massive money printing. Apparently, it's not really trickling down to, to the people who are actually buying things. That's right. Yeah, look, the, question, the questioner is exactly right, Ex- exactly about credit and the role of credit in the economy, including stimulating innovation through the mechanism that you described. Guys, what, what you, and Andrew, what you're saying is we started up here, now we're down here, and we're upset and frustrated and money was no good. But the reason we fell... What's the financial crisis? That was the disaster. And now they're saying, look, investment is lower or consumer spending is lower and it's been growing immediately. That's the result of the crisis. If you hadn't had the monetary policy response that you had, you would have had a more anemic response. It would have been much harder for all of credit to function, including for the buying of iPhones. If, If it would have worked, we would have seen a rebound like we see in every other recession, and then we'd have pretty average growth from that level. 
we saw no rebound, and we've had below average growth from that level. Right back in the back. Hi, my name is Melissa. Uh, my question is for the four team. Um, what do you think beyond stabilizing the banks during the crisis that quantitative easing did for the average American making forty or fifty thousand dollars a year? Well, I think what it did was it helped to make credit more freely available. It boosted confidence and activity in the financial system. And the process of that boosted probably both consumption and investment spending. In other words, it strengthened the forces of economic recovery in the country. Now, that hasn't been a benefit to every American, but look at the number of jobs created. You've got to take a view on what the situation would have been like without this assistance. As Simon said, we'd uh, experienced the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. We've had a recovery. During that process of recovery, what's the policy been? Actually, the policy has been not just to keep interest rates very low, but to pump money into the economy. That policy works to increase the flow of credit, increase demand in the economy. The previous question was exactly right. The point is about demand, not supply. The increased demand then enables the economy to grow more strongly. I, I, think, Ed I, think, I think you're reduced, Roger, to I think it did. I don't have any data... I can't really make an argument, but in my opinion, it did. That's what you're saying, okay? Because when we really get down to the brass tacks of this, it is very difficult to find any effect from quantitative easing after the, finan- after the bailout of the banks. But what he, what and when so, we say that it freed Ed, up credit, Ed, what do you, what, what do you, I think more specifically what your opponent is saying is that things would, would still be a lot worse today not just with QE1, but with QE2 and QE3, that things would not be as good today as they are. I, I, under, I hear what so he what, said. He what, said in his opinion he doesn't so think... So you're, think you're saying does. it's without, without data and without facts? I'm saying he's just giving an opinion because he doesn't really have an argument that he can make here. And what I tell you is the reason why we say the theory doesn't work, it only works in practice, is because despite them telling you that it's in all the textbooks, the theory is exchanging one IOU a bushel of corn for another IOU a bushel of corn, government debt, You have to go, what's the big deal on the exchange? And when they pretend that writing IOUs improves credit, no, what improves credit is having corn in the silos available to be used. Simon Johnson. So so I think, Melissa, you're asking the right question. What does it do for the middle class? What does it do for middle Americans? And the answer is not enough. You know, and we have a lot of inequality, and, and perhaps this policy exacerbated that. I, I take Ben Bernanke at his word when he said this policy was for Main Street, not for Wall Street. But honestly, if you put the central bank in a straitjacket, and this is the real agenda here, this is where this is going in the broader debate in this country. If you put the central bank in a straitjacket, that is not going to be good over the cycle when we're faced by these crises for exactly the middle-class Americans. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jeremy Greenfield. I'm an editor at The Street in New York, and... Um, One of the things that has happened over the past uh, few years is that large publicly traded firms have borrowed huge sums of money not to make investments but to do stock buybacks and dividends, which largely benefit investors, which are all of us, but but largely the top 10, 15, 20%. Is that what the team that is for means by prosperity? Roger Boodle. No, I don't think that amounts to prosperity, and I'm not convinced, indeed, that it adds to prosperity. There's a strain in this debate whereby someone says, look, there are all sorts of problems with America that haven't been solved. You know, uh, you know my garage door doesn't work. You know, um, you know I, I say, I've got to go back to the gammy leg and the gammy sex life. You know, what did QE do for me? Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we, we know that there are all these problems in the U.S. economy, and most of them have got nothing whatever to do with the monetary system. The question is, given all that, all those awful 
lawful things, eating away at jobs, diminishing the middle class incomes. Given all that, what should monetary policy have done and has monetary policy contributed to ameliorating those problems in some regard? And I think the evidence is pretty clear. What it's done is it's helped to sustain the growth of demand. In the end, that amounts to jobs, the most important thing of all. Just just to level set here a bit. QE was also undertaken in the UK. Uh, the Bank of England did its own report. They did about a trillion dollars of QE. I can't do an English accent, but I will tell you what they actually wrote about sort of the monetary policy and, and its impacts in the macroeconomy. It says, the benefit of wealth effects, which is what we're talking about, will accrue to those households holding the most assets. Distributional consequences and its benefits will not be shared equally uh, among all individuals. And, that, and that's the problem, right? We do actually have to talk about the transmission mechanism, how these tools actually work. Can you tell us your name as well? My name's Eric, and my question is for Andrew on the against team. Uh, Bernanke's been very firm about two things post-retirement, it seems to me. One, I think you just disagreed with. Uh, he said that the policy has been making things better than they'd otherwise be. So I have to ask you about your point of view on the second thing. And that is that this experiment, as imperfect as it is, is as necessary as it is because congressional leadership, driven mostly by the Republican Party, wouldn't permit a more expansionary fiscal policy. So, and yeah. so my question is, do you agree or disagree with that? Andrew, sorry. Um, so, first of all, I, 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 there has been job growth. I mean, I think I'm very heartened by that, as, as we all are. I, I think this is, this is what the Fed's perspective inside is, right? These are smart, well-intentioned people. And what they think is, listen, the rest of Washington is dysfunctional, and at least we're doing something to help. And I think uh, 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 Goldman Sachs, which is no bastion of reform, a couple of weeks ago it had an article just about this in a report, and it said basically central bank support may create opportunities for other economic actors to shirk their responsibilities. And I think that's a huge issue that we have to ask ourselves. By pumping so much money into Wall Street banks, are we ultimately helping or are we just kicking the can down the road in terms of more reform? Are we actually enabling further growth and power of, of the U.S. financial sector to the expense of other, other parts of the economy? I think there's important political questions about how big the government should be, to what extent should we redistribute income, to what extent should the government stimulate demand, and whether or not we should let politicians control the money supply. Long ago, we decided it was not a good idea to let the politicians control the money supply. But I think on the other issues, you might be frustrated with what Congress has come up with. But what you're proposing is taking the power away from Congress and giving it to the head of the Federal Reserve, who's accountable to nobody. So do you really think that if the central bank had done nothing or done much less, that somehow the... Honestly, the Republicans in, in, in Congress, who, as you know, control the House of Representatives uh, since 2010, you really think that they would have changed their stance on fiscal policy in, in any way? No, that's not how American politics work today, and you know that very well. And I was a student of Ben Bernanke's in the 1980s. I followed his work uh, closely. I, I, I wish I could say that I'm a friend of Ben Bernanke's. In fact, I've been quite critical of him on, on bank regulation, on bank capital, which those are the key issues you need to address in terms of the power of the banks. But I've heard Ben Bernanke on the macroeconomics, on the monetary policy say exactly what you heard him say. I've heard him say that the policy made it better than it otherwise would have been. I understand it's a bit of a subtle statement. I understand that perhaps there's a bit too much nuance there right. for, for some people, but that's the right way to Here's think about it. Here's what I want to do. We have a technique that we call the volley round in which we try to zero in on a specific point that's gone back and forth repeatedly without resolution to just zero in and see if everybody can summarize their position on this in 30 seconds the way it works. I have a little bell. 
I'm going to put this question out there. It relates to Ben Bernanke, and each of you gets 30 seconds in term. It goes back and forth. When your time is up, the bell gets rung. You have to stop talking and give it to the other side. The question is this. this is about Ben Bernanke. Why is Ben Bernanke on your side? Why is Ben Bernanke on your side? Ben Bernanke, <laughs> ben Bernanke the former Federal uh, Reserve chairman who uh, was uh, the enactor of QE2, famously referred to as Helicopter Ben because of a statement he once made about situations such as this. You want to drop money by helicopters into the situation. Uh, to, to rescue, to put out the fire. So I want to go to this side first. Which of you would like to speak first? Your 30 seconds. Simon Johnson starts now. Ben Bernanke went to Milton Friedman's 90th birthday party. He said, with regard to the Great Depression, we did it. We were responsible, the Federal Reserve. We're sorry, and we won't do it again. And he meant that the Federal Reserve had not created money in the face of that financial panic and everything that came after it, including the collapse of real activity. And they didn't do it again. Ben Bernanke and his colleagues saved the day. Now, it was a mess. It was a disaster. Ben Bernanke talks about that too. But it was better than it would otherwise have been. That's what Bernanke says. Bernanke is absolutely... We're on Bernanke's side. Andrew Hussar. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fine. Ed Conard. I think Ben Bernanke flat out says that uh, uh, printing money cannot create prosperity. He says it works in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. And now he says QE will only work if it's permanent, if it actually inflicts inflation on the, if it's guaranteed to inflict inflation on the economy in the long run. I think he's backed way off of his position that got him the name Helicopter Ben. You can read the New Yorker magazine on Adair Turner's book, and Ed says he no longer mentions the theories that he put forward in the past. You can read his book. 500 pages of what he has to say about quantitative easing now, and you'll see that the things I said are true. Yeah, uh, we heard earlier on that if this were a Woody Allen film, Ben Bernanke would suddenly appear. Well, unfortunately, uh, he can't appear, but he has taken the trouble to tell me what he really meant uh, (laughs) and what he would have said had he been here, which is that he did absolutely the right thing. The policy made things an awful lot better than they would otherwise have been, and he hasn't recanted at all. Okay. Andrew, who's that? So, uh, you know, Ben Bernanke, before the financial crisis, talked about how this was the great moderation, how activist monetary policy uh, was going to save the day and would never really allow for a financial crisis to happen again. We saw how that went. Uh, Post-financial crisis, he started talking about how we see how uh, uh, monetary policy works in in doesn't work in theory, but it works in practice. And, and, and basically all of his statements since have been similarly confused. All right. That concludes our volley round, the spirit of Ben Bernanke, and that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is central banks can print prosperity. So we're about to move on to round three, and remember again, uh, right after round three, we have you vote the second time, and it's the difference between the two votes that determines the winners of this debate. So our motion is central banks can print prosperity, closing statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first, in support of the motion, Roger Boodle, Executive Chairman of Capital Economics. I think Andrew was saying earlier on that the fact he's lost so much hair was some indication of just how hard he worked in order to boost the money supply and the policy of quantitative easing. As you will have noticed, he has no monopoly in this regard. I find it very interesting that usually supporters of printing money are caricatured as falling into one of two really very different groups. The first is that we're all supposedly supporters of the banks and of bankers and opponents of bank reform. This is nonsense, frankly. Neither Simon nor I believe that. It's quite possible to believe in the policy of printing money and also that the banking system needs radical reform. These two things are not in opposition. 
The second group that we supposedly fall into is that we're raving lefties. We're opponents of the free enterprise system, just like Milton Friedman was. Well, here's one opponent of the free enterprise system, the professor of entrepreneurship at MIT. And I'm the other one. I actually left a comfortable job at HSBC to set up my own business in the basement of my house. Now, it's a small business, but it's mine own. I'm employing 120 people around the world. Some lefty, some raver. I mean, the truth of the matter is that sometimes, in order to protect and promote the free enterprise system, you have to be able to deal with what happens when it implodes for financial and monetary reasons. In other words, what you have to be prepared to do is to print money to create prosperity. Thank you, Roger Boodle. And that's our motion, Central Banks Can Print Prosperity. And here making his closing statement against the motion, Andrew Hussar, Senior Fellow at Rutgers Business School. Two years ago this week, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which I apologized for my role in quantitative easing and argued that the Fed was literally papering over the issue of a chronically underperforming U.S. economy. Ladies and gentlemen, the U.S. continues to register devastating declines in the underlying conditions for economic growth. We are now 15th in the world in infrastructure, 19th in the world in college graduation rates. The list goes on and on. After my op-ed, many friends from inside the Fed expressed confusion. Didn't I see the dysfunction in the rest of Washington? Wasn't it better that someone was doing something rather than nothing? I respect the Fed and the people inside, but what I responded to them is exactly what Ben Bernanke himself has said, that QE is not a panacea, or as Simon Johnson's old employer, the IMF, has repeatedly warned, an over-reliance on accommodative monetary policy without stepping up the pace of structural reform is unlikely to lead back to normal growth. The ultimate tragedy of money printing is not that it might disproportionately benefit Jamie Dimon or Lloyd Blankfein, as unfair as that may be. It's that if it does work at all, by artificially stimulating banks and financial markets, it's sowing complacency about the crumbling economic welfare of the average citizen. In other words, I'd submit the narrative here in America is not that the Fed did something while the rest of Washington did nothing. It's that over time, the Fed did so much that the rest of Washington could get away with doing so little. Ladies and gentlemen, before you vote, I ask you to think about what prosperity really means. Is it more prosperity for all? Or if money printing even works, is it more prosperity for just the most privileged at best? Thank you. Thank you, Andrew Hussar. And the motion is central banks can print money. And here summarizing his position, supporting the motion, Simon Johnson, professor at MIT Sloan School of Management. I I sat uh, recently uh, before a committee of the House of Representatives that was considering a version of exactly this question. And the way that works is actually very, much, very similar to this room, except uh, you, you're down low and, and, and an audience not quite as big as this audience is up above you, looking down on you. And, you know, sometimes you, you, may, you may see these hearings, you may hear about them, and you think, well, that's kind of strange and it's somewhat abstract and so on. But th- this is really where, where policy gets debated and, and where you see policy be, being made. And, and this hearing went on for hours, and it went on for hours because one side of the room, and let me say it was the right-hand side of the room... <laughs> wanted to repeat and reiterate exactly these points, and they wanted to hammer me with the same kind of criticisms that, you know, have been thrown at us uh, tonight, and, and much worse, I have to say, much worse. You know, I think tonight, uh, when, when you vote right now, you will send a message, and the message will either be that even in New York, 
people have lost confidence in, in the central bank, the, the Federal Reserve System, and, and, and its power should be curtailed. And, and you will give, if you do that, if you vote that way, you, you will give great support to the people who right now, right now, are, are proposing legislation that, that are, that's going to put really binding constraints on monetary policy and on the Federal Reserve's ability to act and, and respond to crises. I, I urge you to vote in favor of the motion. Central banks can under some circumstances, print prosperity. That's what we've been arguing. That's what the world needs to hear from you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Simon Johnson. The motion, Central Banks Can Print Prosperity, here summarizing his position against the motion, Edward Conard, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Liberal Berkeley economist Brad DeLong recently described each side of the motion we're debating. About our opponent's view, he said, quote, even though the Fed printed much more money than economists would have thought necessary to offset the impact of the financial crisis, a five-fold increase in the monetary base from $800 billion to $4 trillion, it wasn't enough. Bernanke balked at taking the next step, more than doubling the monetary base to $9 trillion, end quote. Uh, of our view of monetary policy, Berkeley's DeLong said, quote, Larry Summers and Paul Krugman argue that there is little evidence that monetary policy will ever restore full prosperity, end quote. DeLong admits he doesn't know which one of these views is correct. Why doesn't DeLong know which one of these views is correct? Because $3 trillion of printing has produced no discernible effect on the economy. And if it had, DeLong would have seen it, and he would be urging more. Our opponents can't bring any more evidence to the debate that central banks can print their way to prosperity than what Summers, Krugman, and DeLong have already considered. If the evidence hasn't persuaded even those ardent advocates of stimulus, why should it persuade you? Bernanke now flat out admits central banks cannot print their way to prosperity. Our opponents have the burden of proving the motion true, a very tough burden in this case. They haven't made a convincing argument because no one can make a convincing argument on this issue. I urge you to vote against the far-fetched motion central banks can print their way to prosperity. And I would point out that I believe that our opponents have tried to corner the debate. But wait, when we broaden the debate to the real issue, they were able to do little more than offer their opinion that it had, uh, had okay. more positive effect. Than Econo, your time is up. Thank you very much. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is central banks can print prosperity. So I now have the results. They're all in. Remember, it's the team whose numbers changed the most between the first and the second votes who will be declared our winner. The motion is this. Central banks can print prosperity on the first vote. Twenty-nine percent agreed with that. 31 percent disagreed. Forty percent were undecided, which is high for us. So the team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 29%. Their second vote was 35%. They pulled up six percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team against the motion, their first vote was 31%. Their second vote was 54%. They pulled 23 percentage points. That means the team arguing against the motion, central banks can win prosperity. It's the team that's won this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Claya Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. 
Chris Kamakawa is Director of Research, and I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, Van Greenfield, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, Profit Capital Asset Management, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, and Daniel H. Stern. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.